Okay, everyone, welcome to tonight's event organised by um, British Government at the LSE and uh, the Government Department. My name's Paul Kelly and I'm chairing this event. A little bit about who we are and what we do. British Government at LSE has been founded to analyse, engage with and inform British Government and politics. And this is something that the school's done since its inception and it's appropriate that we continue to do that and to celebrate that legacy. In that context, tonight's debate and discussion brings together two of the most important and reflective contributors to British politics and ideas. Both in their own ways are concerned with shaping the terms of politics more generally and also recasting debates within their own political parties. Tonight's um, event is entitled to the big society and the good society. Although taking different sides of the party debate, they both share a desire to refocus politics away from a passive reliance on government in favour of renewal of citizenship, citizen engagement and the quality of social relations. The big society and the good society of our title is, is not two positions in opposition. So, I hope we will see, but rather two sides of the same coin. But the point of tonight's discussion is to really explore what this common currency is and what it involves, and that's what I hope our two speakers will bring to the debate. So let me introduce the two speakers. Maurice Glassman first, or should I say, Baron Glassman of Stoke Newington and Stamford Hill in the London borough of Hackney. I wanted to give him his full title. Morris, <laughs> Morris is a Labour peer and reader in political theory at London Metropolitan University. He was educated at Cambridge, at York University and at the EUI in Florence. He's author of Unnecessary Suffering and most recently contributed to the Labour tradition and the politics of paradox, the founding text of Blue Labour. Perhaps more importantly from his point of view, He's been associated with London Citizens, an umbrella organisation for community activism in London, which championed the London living wage, amongst many other things. Our second speaker, or our first speaker actually in terms of presentations, will be Jesse Norman. Jesse is MP for Hereford and South Herefordshire. He's a member of the Treasury Select Committee and chair of the parliamentary all-party group on employee ownership. He was educated at Eton and Oxford and after a career in the city moved to UCL where he held an honorary position in the philosophy department. He's been senior fellow at Policy Exchange and a leading figure in the new conservatism, being author of Compassionate Conservatism, Compassionate Economics, as well as The Achievement of Michael Oakeshott, a topic that is close to my own heart and that of my department and I hope something that will appear in what he says tonight. Jesse's also been involved in urban regeneration for youth through his work for Roundhouse. Um, and his recent book, The Big Society, has provided one of the most theoretically coherent accounts of this much-challenged ideas. What we're going to do is um, both presenters will speak for approximately 15 minutes. Um, and then um, I will address a few questions to them for about the same length of time. And then we'll open up to the floor for four questions and we aim to finish between about quarter to seven and eight o'clock, quarter to eight and eight o'clock. So, can I ask Jesse to uh, present the case for the big society? Thank you.
Sorry, thanks very much indeed, uh, Paul, and thank you all, ladies and gentlemen, for coming. Um, uh, I was asking the question whether or, I'm just going to tilt this up a little further for me, uh, whether or not this was being recorded um, or whether we were on under the Chatham House rule. As far as I can make out, those things tend to mean the same thing yes. these days. <laughs> um, so I'm going to take the view that we're both being recorded and under the Chatham House rule. Um, thank you for that gloriously kind introduction, uh, uh, Paul. Um, uh, you will recall that famous line of Henry Kissinger where he said, uh, and I actually I will attempt the accent, uh, uh, it's true that I need no introduction, but no one enjoys a long introduction more than I do. <laughs> and that's certainly true. Uh, however, you've, you've, been, um, you've rather smoothed over the details of my life in a way that probably is worth saying. Um, uh, mine, uh, I've been living my life backwards, and um, after I got out of university, I actually... Um, did various things, uh, including running a charity in Eastern Europe. And it was from that that I went back to work um, in the city of London. And from that, by another bizarre backwards move, that I went to um, research and then teach philosophy at University College London. I did that for six years. Uh, and some of the things I'm going to be talking about today actually have a rather long... The reason I mention that is because they've got rather a long uh, background in my, own, in my own life. I'm, I think uh, Michael Oakeshott since 1980, well, early 1980s, and, and my book, which I know you're all going to rush out and buy from the remainder shops as we speak. Um, the achievement of Michael Oak's shop was published just after he died in 1991, so I think it was published in 92. Um, so this is not a kind of um, après la lettre um, piece of uh, philosophizing just to fit the bill, um, although, as you will see, I, I hope you'll agree it does fit the bill quite well. Morris and I are a pair of old rabbis. This, we, I don't know how many attempts we've done to argue this case back and forth, and I very rarely have we done it in such august circumstances. And I'm particularly pleased to be doing it, A, in a, an institution that Oakeshott himself had such uh, uh, reverence for and love for when he was professor of uh, government here uh, in the 1950s, uh, and then first in the 1950s, and, uh, and also uh, in a week after we've had the joyous sight of the Archbishop of Canterbury making a complete ass of himself uh, in thinking and talking about the good society. I mean, why someone, uh, I mean, for reasons we can discuss, and if you'd like in the questions, should have um, uh, disavowed a concept which is so deeply rooted in a set of ideas that are fundamentally Judeo-Christian in their uh, inspiration is absolutely beyond me. I can only think that um, uh, he's made a kind of rather fundamental category mistake. <laughs> Um, a mistake, I might add, which hasn't, wasn't made when Morris and I last debated this, which was in front of uh, uh, Archbishop, Cardinal Archbishop of, of London, Vincent Nichols, who's a really thoughtful, uh, interesting guy, not just smart, but really thoughtful and interesting, as I suspect Rowan Williams is, and who talked about this in the context of Catholic social teaching in a very gripping way. Okay, so what, what, uh, uh, let me start by introducing a distinction which I think is very important in terms of structuring this discussion, and that is between the idea of the big society, the big society as a governing direction or, or idea or, or, or line of thought or viewpoint, and the big society as a, a political set of projects or something you put, you put the words big society on the front of. And it's very important to maintain that distinction because I'm not really going to be talking about the politics of it at all. Um, I mean, I take it as obvious that if you 
adopt some of the views that I'm describing today, then there are many roads to achieving that. So you could, for example, I will argue that uh, localism is an important part of the big society and that free and independent institutions are an important part of that. Um, you could argue that our education uh, policy uh, could be structured around local authorities rather than around schools. That would be to enfranchise one set of institutions versus another set of institutions. Those would be different ways to realize a common idea. So I'm really interested in the idea. This is called um, you know, the Big Ideas Forum, and so it's the idea I'm concentrating on. To do that, let me go back uh, or take you back to uh, the year 1651 uh, and uh, the city of Paris, uh, for it was there, as you may recall, possibly not directly, that Thomas Hobbes published Leviathan. Now, Leviathan... Uh, was, of course, I need not remind this audience, um, uh, the founding work of, I suppose, modern uh, British political philosophy. When I used to teach philosophy, they said, uh, you'll be doing the modern paper. I said, that's very interesting, what's that? They said, oh, it's the period of philosophy between the year 1600 and the year 1850. So 1651 sounds like the right good place to start for modern philosophy. Um, it's also the introduction of the idea of the social contract, which we take to be so foundational to British political discourse at the moment that it barely receives a, a second thought. But I want to give it a second thought with you, if I may, and just ask ourselves what that is. As you will recall, uh, uh, what uh, Hobbes says is that uh, uh, were it not for a sovereign power, we would live in a state of nature in which our lives would be solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. And what prevents us from doing this is that we repose a measure of our own autonomy, our own self-sovereignty in some further sovereign entity, a sovereign power, which he calls Leviathan, and this sovereign is then morally empowered and practically empowered to uh, guard our borders and to create uh, internal order. And it is that that then answers the question, by what right does government exercise uh, its power? That is to say the fundamental question of the legitimacy of sovereign authority as such. Now that is, I take it, a phenomenally familiar and interesting uh, uh, account. And what is so intellectually interesting about it, of course, is that it does what all philosophers and indeed I think all academics do uh, love, which is it tries to take the thinnest possible set of premises and extract the fattest possible conclusion from those premises. So you imagine the smallest possible aperture in your top hat and the largest possible rabbit coming out of it. Um, and that is a, a magnificent achievement and a very elegant and intellectually stimulating achievement. And it is in itself, I think, the foundation of modern game theory. So if you think about what game theory or modern economics, very much of it is, very, very simple uh, 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 foundational assumptions. In the case of neoliberal economics, those would be assumptions about perfect information, perfect rationality, uh, 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 and... Um, uh, the third one is information rationality and someone remind me and, um, uh, and from that you get you know, very rich theory of, of, of aggregate human behaviour so that's the idea now the question is um, what's, why am I raising it now well I, th I want to direct your attention to two holes in that account uh, one hole uh, is that um, actually Hobbes in this outline account that I've given uh, there is no space or very little space uh, if you like for the notion of an independent institution. Those, are those, those come after this. This is the foundational account. Institutions are what happens once you've already, once you've created this, as it were, social space through the notion of a sovereign to guarantee the, the outlines of society. Um, so there's no notion as such of an independent institution in this picture that I've described. And furthermore, there's what you might call a rather debased conception of what a human being is. 
Now, I don't want to go into the detail of Hobbes, who had some rather interesting views of his own on these things. I just mean to say that by focusing on those two things of institutions and individuals, you get what I think is, within British common thought, the common foundation stone for some of the ideas that Morris is talking about and that the ideas that I'm talking about. Because the big society, and I'm sure the good society is also true, is fundamentally about freeing up, empowering, and enabling institutions that lie between the state and the individual on the one hand, and invigorating, empowering, stimulating, liberating the capability of the human being on the other side. So, so what is it opposed to then? What, what's the, what's the, what's the, as it were, the, what, where does the, where's the beef in terms of what you, would dis, you, what you would dismiss if you took that view? Well, the first thing I think you would dispose of is a very Fabian view of the state. Because on this view, the state, in that sense, is, is constantly intervening. It's, it's crowding out, or it's undermining, or it's uh, uh, unsettling, or it's, um, uh, sometimes it's also empowering, we should be perfectly clear, those free institutions. Um, uh, that's it. a, a strongly centralized Fabian state would be one thing that would, this would find itself in some tension with. And the other thing would be uh, what I would call a thoroughly utilitarian conception of the human, of the human being. Um, and in the book, I developed this line of thought into a pretty thoroughgoing attack on Fabianism and a pretty thoroughgoing attack on what I call rigor mortis economics, right? the, the economics of neoliberalism. And that comes from Ken Boulding's famous line that mathematics brought rigor to economics, but it also brought mortis. And I think that's, I think that's true, and I think you can see the long shadow of that line of thought in our, in our politics and economics today. Um, and of course... That then gives you, that then allows you, having, as it were, made that demarcation, you can then ask yourself the question of what a society would look like if it was not, um, if it was not uh, dominated by the state. Um, and I'm not suggesting that ours is, you know, we can debate the actual facts of the British situation separately, if you'd like. But what it does is to allow an intellectual hook on which to hang uh, Michael Oakeshott, because, of course, you'll recall that in On Human Conduct, which, of course, no one reads, um, uh, he talks about um, a state... Uh, an enterprise association, two, two categories of association, civil association and enterprise association. A civil association is an association, or we might think society, organized under the category of law, and an enterprise association is an, organ is an association organized under the category of purpose. Um, so if you think that the, a society is an entity whose purpose is to achieve certain goals, you're already slipping into Oakeshottian enterprise associationism. If you think uh, a society is a matter of procedure and due process, you're, you're, you're in uh, Oakeshott's civil association world. And I don't think it requires very much reflection on our current situation to see that we've slipped very much in the enterprise category over the last hundred years. In some ways for very good reasons, practical political reasons, in other ways for less good ones. But that gives you a spot for Oakeshott. And since we're dropping names, let me just give you a, a spot for the person who might take that parallel position on the, in, on the uh, individual side of the argument, we've talked about institutions, society, now we come back to individuals, human capability, and that would be Aristotle. Um, and and uh, uh, again, if we go back, and this being big ideas, I hope you'll excuse me if I drop another big name, um, Aristotle writes uh, in the uh, politics and in the Nicomachean ethics in particular about the notion of a human being as a social animal, as a politicos bios, which, which, and as an animal, as a, as a person of habit. 
And I think that's another crucial insight which we've somehow expunged from our contemporary political debate. We've stopped regarding people as creatures of habit. And so that's one of the reasons why we make really stupid um, uh, 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 decisions about how they operate. So I'm sure you'll find later on when we hear from Morris that there's an enormous amount of overlap, but that I, su I suppose is your kind of intellectual trajectory that I'm coming from and, uh, uh, we can, and we can unite those two sides and respond to Hobbes by thinking of another one of my great heroes and the final name I'm going to mention drop tonight, which is that of Edmund Burke, because of course Burke uh, would not have recognised the notion of the social contract as such. Uh, Burke's view would be that uh, uh, it, it is, uh, as it were, um, human, uh, uh, the state of nature uh, for a human being is to be in society. Man is, in that sense, a political spios, is a, is a creature of habit embedded in society. And that, I think, is what anchors this line of thought firmly in the kind of compassionate conservative tradition that I've described, quite distinct from libertarianism on one side and um, uh, Fabianism on the other. And with that concluding thought, let me shut up and leave the space open to my dear friend and colleague, or, or possible colleague uh, in future, if we can lure him over. Um, um, uh, 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 Morris Glassman. I noticed that one of Morris's books is entitled Unnecessary Suffering. I only hope that doesn't justify to Ed Miliband. Thank you very much. Thank you. So, um, thank you, Jesse, and, and good evening. First of all, thank you to Paul for, for, the, for the invitation and, and to say um, what an honour it is to be here at LSE. On the whole, I'm really, really horrible to LSE as a matter of principle, um, seeing it as a... See, for, for me, Jesse, this Fabianism is a very real thing um, and a very real problem because um, it was a combination of sort of middle-class moralism, economic, social science, progressivism, and sort of state authoritarianism that sort of ripped the guts out of the um, Labour Party over about 70 years. And uh, I've often targeted... LSE, as you know, began as a sort of Fabian think tank. So I've often been um, unnecessarily horrible um, to the LSE, but it also has nurtured uh, two of my great intellectual heroes, um, Ernest Gellner, was a professor here for many years and the work he did on, on the self and the development of the self-anthropology was, was very important for me. And secondly, and most importantly, the LSE gave refuge to Hayek um, when he was a refugee from Germany and it was Keynes, above all, who guaranteed his place here. And if you think that Hayek spent his whole life ripping Keynes apart, I think that was perhaps the most generous thing that Keynes ever did. And... Um, and uh, certainly more generous to Hayek than he was to um, the Labour Party. So um, it's a real honour to be here also, Paul, whose, whose work I, I greatly respect, and, to, um, and, and also to obviously express my appreciation to, to Jesse Norman, who has genuinely um, engaged in, in important and original ways in trying to, um, how can I put it best, sort of, sort of, um, redeem the Conservative Party from its um, <laughs> Thatcherite inheritance and, um, and my argument will obviously be that the medicine isn't quite strong enough yet um, but I do appreciate how dark the moments must be at times when you, when you can confront the sort of 
utilitarian intellectual aridity of the Treasury, and I know you're on the Treasury Select Committee, and that must really be a very bad seminar <laughs> indeed. Um, and this, this, this debate, this discussion, um, is, of, is of great importance and great, great vitality, and it's absolutely vital that here at LSE, where the students in particular have always taken a very important role in developing um, new ideas and engaging with them politically. I have experience here. I was part of the Living Wage campaign here, which you know is part of my you know, backstory. LSE, we called it the London School of Exploitation. I don't know if you remember, we had the banners up mm -hmm. all over the place, paying your senior executives over £100,000 and not paying your, your cleaners and your cooks and your security guards um, a living wage. But one of the rules of community organising is you always make your enemy live up to their rule book. And then we discovered the founding charter of LSE. It was like one of those LSD hallucinations. It was a, a university that was committed to the common good, to the treatment of the poorest, to the good of London, to the development of a distinctive economy that didn't treat workers as commodities. So we just read it out at the AGM. And I remember my new colleague, Anthony Ginn's going, oh, right, 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 right. <laughs> and, um, and, that, and that's how we won it. But it was a, it was a very... A very, um, a very tough battle and I remember that the students union here was actually superb and fought really hard um, in order to reconstitute a genuine corporate body here, a genuine corporate institution and, and the test we always have at London Citizens is do you invite the cooks, do you invite the cleaners, do you invite the security guards to your Christmas party and the answer was no. Um, we don't, and um, and why should we? They're contracted out, and I and I remember that that, that did change, and so I'm really hoping that um, the LSE, and particularly the students at LSE, will live up to their tradition of engaging with the new, renewing the institution, and making sure that you go beyond being the LSE, London School of Economics, and remember that it's also the London School of Economics and Political Science and bring some politics back into play. So it, it, it's very wonderful, um, really, to, to be here, and, and I want to honour the, the institution publicly. Now, in terms of, of this idea of, of... I just want to clarify in terms of where there's, where there's genuine agreement, but also where there's um, tension in that agreement, is Aristotle is obviously a shared starting point for Jesse and for myself and Aristotle did us argue that human beings were social beings, that human beings were also political beings and also zoon logon echon, language using beings and that the, the inheritance and that the relationships and the institutions of the polis were foundational and constitutive of the development of the self that that's an extremely important part of the um, Aristotelian, uh, Aristotelian argument and that the tendency of the good societies, this is just Aristotle in that sense, a society that orientates itself towards the good. But that always begs the question of, of what is the good. And the good, I would argue, is a undominated life. So the important Aristotelian argument is contrary to that is that we are all dependent. We are dependent on each other in terms of the inheritance of language. We're dependent on each other 
in terms of our dependence on each other's work, each other's honesty, on each other's passivity or some form of civility that enables us to continue life, that the condition of politics, Aristotle said, didn't he, that anybody outside of relationships is either a beast or a god. And I've argued many times that the City of London proves that you could be both at the same time. Um, and that's the key, that's the key point, is, um, is that an Aristotelian politics believes that we are bound by common institutions, common laws, and what happens is, is that is in politics, you broker forms of domination into a form of mutual dependency. And it's the mutuality in that that's vital. And so a good society is a society which is based fundamentally on relationships. And I argue that the fundamental forms of those relationships are relationships of reciprocity. What does it mean, reciprocity? It means an active relationship of give and take, where people are equally situated, where both liberty and equality characterize that relationship, and where your freedom and your possibility of fulfillment is tied up with the fulfillment of others. So it's a fundamentally relational idea. The second idea is an idea, very political idea, of mutuality. That, that in a political society we're not alone and that our good is fundamentally tied up with a shared fate with other people. And then if you can really get it right and you can get your intermediate institutions and your ethos going, then you can achieve a form of solidarity, which is a form of democratic relationship in which you actively sympathize and empathize with the fate of people that you don't know in that political society, and that is a form of patriotism. Now, what I would certainly argue is that this form of Aristotelian politics um, does not have its roots in the conservative tradition, which is far more authoritarian paternalistic, um, which doesn't, which has a, a quite robust concept of tradition, but that's not combined with a radicalism that would allow reciprocity to flourish, but more, um, more linked to concepts of subordination. But I do argue that the labor tradition is fundamentally Aristotelian. That the labor, and this is where I want to get to the big um, argument with 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 Jesse, um, and the point of the point of contention, and that relates to, and I, you know, I apologise, Paul, for using for using the word in in such a place, but it, capitalism is the. There you go. I've said it, um, and 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 the problem that Aristotle in the first chapter of the politics absolutely clarified, which is that what you have when you pursue money and money becomes an end is you pursue, is that the human appetite becomes avaricious, it becomes torn away from reciprocity, it becomes torn away from human limit and finity and becomes endless, insatiable, and he argues vicious. And I don't think we have to look very far to see how far down that road we've gone, how deeply complicit conservatism has been in the, um, in the promotion of an avaricious, insatiable, desire-based, commodified, and monetized idea of the good, which is called choice. 
in, in public sector terms. And, and, and so for, from the time of Aristotle, and I argue that the labor tradition is the modern manifestation of this and, and draws on, um, it's no accident that Vincent Nichols is an extremely interested person in relation to this because far more than in secular institutions, it was Catholic social thought that actually tried to preserve ideas of a balance of interest in autonomous institutions so that the rich didn't dominate them. Um, and it was Catholic social thought that also had an idea of the person as a meaning-seeking being that fulfilled themselves in relationship with others. And that's a foundational um, aspect, neglected as it has been, in the development, particularly in the North, of the, of the labor tradition of political economy, of solidarity, and of the common good. And the thing is with, with capitalism is that it substitute for relationships um, contract, and it substitutes for relationships, um, efficiency, and above all, the domination and rule of money. Now, in order to grasp how serious this situation is and how distinctive the, the, the role of the labor tradition has been in, in trying to maintain some notion of, of a society, so what I'm trying to do in this kind of subtle way is insinuate that it's not me that's going that way, Jesse, but you that should really come this way, is that labor is the authentic expression of this form of Aristotelian good that it does so with a tradition and a great tradition of preserving and upholding the liberties of the country. One of the great paradoxes that I could share with you is that the more that I talk about England, the more interested people are abroad. I can't, you know, I used to write sort of universal liberal theory and nobody read a word I wrote. Now I talk about England and I get all these calls from all over the world saying this is very fascinating, but we can return to that. But this goes back to the lack of balance in our constitution and it's never been the case that we've had a social contract constitution we've got the ancient constitution which is still in place and in the ancient constitution there's fundamentally four institutions that are supposed to and this is very um, Burkean that are supposed to uphold the the interests of the realm and the first is Parliament where historically the Commons represented the locational interest, the interest of people who voted in the places where they, where they lived. Unbelievably, the Lords were supposed to represent a vocational interest, which, which is still expressed in the bishops' benches in the, in, in, in the role of the hereditaries. Then the monarch traditionally represented the executive interest, the, the governmental interest, the interest of action and, and of the family. And then there was the church which was supposed to represent the soul of the nation. And then there's the city of London, which was actually supposed to represent the civic interest and the urban interest. And what's very interesting in that is that the, of all those four institutions, the most powerful as we speak is the city of London, is the money interest. And what they did in the city of London is that they expelled essentially the people who lived there, sometimes by fire, sometimes by setting up plantations in Ulster, sometimes by discovering the United States of America and setting up a free market economy there. But step by step, they actually removed the people from London, maintained their ancient privileges, maintained their ancient assets, used their role in the ancient constitution to promote the money interest and not the civil interest, and in doing so have subordinated 
um, particularly this has been true under conservative um, governments, have subordinated all forms of interest to those of money. Our economy is entirely now dependent on finance and the development of finance. So I'm going to be very, very quick in, in now jumping to the point, which is the point is, is that in a good society, in a society where you can honour your relationships with others, in a society where you can fulfil yourself through free civic institutions, in a society which is fundamentally relational and in which the money interest is one of a number and not sovereign, in such a society we have to pay much, much more attention to democratic association in all our institutions, in relational power, as an opposition to both the sovereignty of money and the sovereignty of the state, reassert the role of, of which universities are a fundamentally um, important one, and reorientate ourselves towards, you know, which is the end point of Aristotle, virtue. Now, I just want to, I kind of rambled on about this the other day on Newsnight, and I'll round up with this. There's much more to say, and we'll talk about it in the discussion. But it struck me, as a political theorist, that when I was watching Manchester United versus Barcelona in the European Cup final a few Saturdays ago, that what we had there was fundamentally the good society, or you could say, in my terms, it was blue labour versus new labour, in that Manchester United were completely controlled by foreign capitalists, it was an entirely commodified form of club, it was entirely contractual. The only way that Manchester United fans can truly express love for the club is just by giving them money. That's the only form, it's an utterly estranged and alienated form of longing and devotion. So this is the problem with, with capitalism, is that it makes that disconnect between meaning and price. So football fans can feel a tremendous love for the club, but in real terms it just has a commodity price. We can call it commodity football. In contrast, Barcelona, owned by their fans, they have an institute, the, the training institute in Barcelona is called a virtue institute where they learn technical skills, excellence, um, up until recently, which kind of undermines my argument, that they didn't have a sponsor. It, they weren't walking around advertising very dodgy insurance companies. Um, Barcelona was a community-owned club with virtue at its core. And in order to, to pursue virtue, um, I would say there has to be a resistance to the domination of capital. This is the distinctiveness of the good society, that the good society resists the domination of the state and argues, Jesse, extremely strongly, as, as you know, against the administrative, Weberian, utilitarian state as the embodiment of the common good. In that sense, you could say we really don't take great inspiration from Gordon Brown. But we also, democracy is also, and even more importantly, the way that we resist the domination of capital and the market. And that is the good society where people are brave, where people show courage, where people show solidarity to each other, where trust is an aspect where we essentially pursue the good. And I think that where we've got, and the reason why this debate is important, is that for roughly speaking 200, maybe 300 years, we have genuinely believed that the way to achieve the good is to be bad. That's the economic theory. The way to genuinely, if you're serious about being good, just let people be bad. And the story of Manchester United, the story of 
of um, New Labour. I think the story of this Liberal-led coalition too is that it might be a really good idea to start pursuing the good directly. And that is the meaning, I think, of the good society. Thank you very much. I must, I must let um, Jesse have a, a brief response to that. Uh, you will. Thank you very much for that, uh, Paul. And thank you, Morris, for um, uh, drawing our attention to the piquant fact that Lasky and Fabianism were born uh, in this institution. Uh, well, not Lasky himself, but uh, he was obviously a prominent figure, um, Oakshot's predecessor. Um, and also, of course, my own institution, UCL, um, I think has a rather, on the contrary, has a very <laughs> glorious tradition, the first, uh, and you should be thoroughly cognizant of it, Morris, um, the first institution to uh, hold extension courses, the first to admit women, the first to have, um, to allow people to teach who were not ordained members of the Church of England, the first to admit Jews. I think that's a pretty fine record, actually, as an independent institution. And with the wit to retain the spirit, and I'm pleased to say not the thought of Jeremy Bentham. Um, um, I, I don't think any of us has any claim to authenticity. I'm completely against the idea that somehow Aristotle was a new Labourite or a blue Labourite or a Tory or any of that. I think that's nonsense. Um, the fact is there's a set of ideas and they're of great interest and they should be examined for what they are and in some cases they cast a shadow forward and they cast it in different political directions. And while I adored Morris's language and rhetoric, that shouldn't, we should not be afraid to point out that actually some of the thinking that he's uh, described to you is hopelessly confused. And let me just point out two and three ways in which it is. One is because um, and I don't think this is an advertent move, but it, it simply isn't a, it's an effective rhetorical strategy, but it's not an effective intellectual strategy to blame uh, uh, the Conservative Party for the evils of, um, uh, or non-evils of a viewpoint that may have anteceded it by hundreds, if not thousands of years. Um, uh, it, it, uh, we need to keep these things separate. Um, from my point of view, if the Conservative Party is acting in a thoroughly libertarian way, it's not acting in a very conservative way. Um, if it's acting, uh, I recall vividly that some of the language from the Conservative Party in the 1940s was statist, so statist it could be, have been dictated by, um, you know, out of the central presidium of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. That wasn't very conservative either. So we need to keep this distinction, uh, intellectual versus political distinction, uh, uh, I think, in mind. The other thing, of course, is that um, uh, there's a further distinction to be made between capitalism and finance. Mm -hmm. Capitalism, properly understood, uh, is very little about finance. It's very little about. It's not at all about the love of money. It's about um, the expression of the human self through the creation of some product, and then the fact that others will buy it. And money is, an, is, a, is something that comes afterwards. And uh, the greatest uh, theorists of capitalism, uh, one thinks of Smith, knew that. Um, Smith, of course, famously wrote his book on the moral sentiments to provide the moral counterpart to this line of thought. And what we're seeing now is a period of fake capitalism. Uh, and uh, it's not what I would call real capitalism. And we shouldn't confuse the two. Uh, and we certainly also shouldn't associate one political party 
with one, of, one side of it versus another. I mean, I have spent two hours today listening to a litany of complaints in the Treasury Select Committee about the evils of the private finance initiative, something which the Tories didn't have the balls to do very much with because of concerns about having, having looked at it and introduced it in the early 1990s, but which went up by a factor of between 10 and 12 uh, uh, during the new Labour years. This was not the action of a, um, uh, uh, a, a government that was uh, alienating itself from finance or from financial capitalism. It was uh, the action of a government that was deeply compromised. But I'm not going to make the parallel mistake of confusing the intellectual tradition that Morris is talking about with blue labour or new labour or, or anything else. I think uh, these things need to be kept separate and their political instantiation needs to be evaluated separately. Um, let me just end on, on that thought um, and pose a question that we might want to ask in our own questions, which is, once we've drawn these distinctions, once we've thought about capitalism as not having any intrinsic link to finance in the thoroughly corrupted, and Morris is absolutely right about that, sense that it has been taken now, uh, once we've uh, restored a proper understanding, then first of all, the question is, how do we get there? And the second is, what is the alternative that Morris is proposing to capitalism as such? Because I'm not detecting anything at the moment. What I'm seeing is a critique, is, is an easy sloganeering that ties the Tories into some alleged absence of critique of the market. Nothing could be further from the truth. I direct you to chapter, central chapters of my book on the topic. Um, but it hasn't as yet fleshed out any genuine, rich alternative. That's what I think the real argument needs to focus on. Thank you very much. You, you, you can come back to each other as we as we go on, but let me kick off with a, with a couple of questions before I open up to the floor. I mean, one of the things that both of you do, which is which is interesting, is that is that you you present a vision of where you think politics should go, the good society, the big society. But but implicit in that is also a critique of where we are. But how did we get here? And surely that story has to have some bearing on the possibilities of what we can do next. I mean, this comes out very clearly in, in, in Morris's indictment or, or challenge to his own political party, but it's also very much in your own work, Jesse. I mean, you know, there is something that we want to move on from, but we, we are where we are. Is there not a story there that constrains us? Well, I think, um, I mean, again, we need to distinguish between how do, how do we get here intellectually? What was the, as it were, what's the passage of thought? What's the patterns of justification or implication by which we arrive at the current line of thought? And uh, the question of how do we get here? How, how do we get into the state we're in now? if you see what I mean. And, and let me just talk about the latter, because I think that's the political payoff that people really want to listen to. Um, we got here in part because of a deeply complicit relationship between political parties in which they accepted something, a set of ideas, uh, too uncritically, and oriented themselves around it. And if you don't believe that, I suggest you read a book by Simon Jenkins called Thatcher's Sons, which um, uh, uh, picks up the extent to which this the libertarian view, and, I, and I'm, uh, I mean kind of uber-libertarian, I don't want, there, there are many aspects of classical liberalism that are interesting, although in my view, insufficiently conservative. Um, and, um, uh, uh, but that libertarian view became the common currency of political parties for 30 years. And you can see why that happened. If you doubt why, I mean, people under the age of 
35 or 40, if you'll excuse me, being mildly patronizing unintentionally, don't really see it. But Britain in the 1970s was a place of allegedly great social solidarity, but I can tell you it was not a happy place, particularly happy place to live. It was um, uh, uh, sinking fast uh, economically and politically. And um, while the medicine may have been um, uh, not medicine, but in some respects uh, uh, dangerous in and of its own right, as many medicines are, that something was needed. And so, without defending some of, the, some of the less attractive aspects of the 1980s, one can see how a society could properly and plausibly have made the social choice that was made at that time, and one can see how that social choice might have been continued um, uh, in the 19, uh, late 1990s and in the 2000s. Um, and that's a deep question of sociology as to how that happened. Let me just pick up one little point which I think is vitally important, which is in part, it came out of bad economics. It came out of this, uh, there's an unholy alliance, which I describe in the book, between um, what you would call neoliberal economics, this, this highly libertarian view of economics, rigor mortis economics, as I call it, and centralization. Because if you think that people are basically just about money, that they are basically people who just avoid loss uh, and seek gain, uh, you've adopted that. Uh, then it's terribly hard, and you have modern technology, and it's terribly hard to, to produce a principled reason why you shouldn't just be trying to control people through the tax and benefit system. And that's what's happened. I mean, look at the tax credit system. The tax credit system is a very precise attempt to control people by tweaking their marginal costs and benefits as though nothing else mattered. There was no aspect of human dignity, human love, human linkage, human affection, human culture, human institutions. And restoring that view is, in a sense, the common endeavor, regardless of any idiotic party political differences that may be laid on top of that, the common endeavor, and why I rather fear at some point Morris and I will end up writing a book together. Um, 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 but it isn't going to be a book um, that talks about um, these things in quite the terms that we've had so far. Thank you. Morris. Yeah, and uh, certainly, I'm just here, I take the point. We, 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 we speak in a, in, in a political um, context, um, and um, there are, what I'm trying to, sorry, I'll speak louder. What I'm trying to get at is obviously is is that in the concept of human capabilities in in that sort of senian idea it, it's still not quite conservative enough is what i'm is what i'm pushing at do you mean it's not conservative enough for you um yeah i think i think that's one 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 completely valid way of putting it um another another way of putting it though is not is is that i think that there is something obviously wonderful about the conservative tradition and something wonderful about the English conservative tradition um, that, that has something to say and the way that I want to get at, at the point of issue in a, in a non-partisan way is, is, is really to talk about Hayek and then I'll get to the point of how did we get here because I think, I think that's a really important question. So Hayek in his um, anthropology, in his historical work um, and I completely agree with you about the price-setting market and the discovery process of the market um, as, as vastly superior to the rigor mortis economics. Mm. He had an idea that human beings, roughly, that there was reason on one side, there was instinct on the other, and those two were mediated by tradition. So tradition was the mediating concept between instinct and rationality. 
And that's what he argued was the basis of law-keeping. That's what he argued was the basis of trust. That was what he argued was the basis of knowledge. Now, unfortunately, in his economics, he had no mediating principle between the state and the market. Now, what I'm trying to do is put those mediating institutions back into the economy in terms of vocational training, mm. in terms of regional banks, in terms of universities as genuine sites of decommodified knowledge and the reproduction of knowledge rather than exclusively having systems of information and, and markers within that. So, so the point I'm making about the conservatism, the, the, the deep point, and we haven't yet got to this point in previous discussions, mm. is, that, is that in the in the approach that you develop in the book, of which I'm you know, wildly sympathetic on the whole, there still isn't the notion of these intermediate institutions that can resist commodification and the pressures of them. So what we need is these decentralized institutions that stop, that to be, the reason why we got here, Paul, the reason why we got here is that the ultimately, you know, the working people of England, they lost their land, they were kicked off the land, they were denied all their skills, you know, in, in two years between 1832 and 1834, they repealed the Apprenticeship Act, they, they finished off the final enclosures, and we know that, people ended up, you know, climbing chimneys and being brutally exploited. And ultimately, the only institution that was powerful enough to resist the domination of that force was the state. This was, so all our intermediate institutions, with the exception of our universities, uh, and to some extent, this is my love of the Catholic Church, is, is that it did stand stubborn and defiant against the state and the market, is that we ended up with this state market and while we had a very traditional political culture, we'd lost a huge amount of our lived traditions through that process of commodification and then nationalisation. Now, what happened with nationalisation is that the reason why, despite the huge affections that I have for the National Health Service and other things, the reason why 1945 was such a calamity was that the nationalisation model did not engage with vocation, did not engage with any worker representation within it, was entirely the same kind of utilitarian managerialism. So with the breakdown of the nationalisation <coughs> model, there was no alternative to the Thatcher moment. So what we had was the recommodification again. So what's required here, and the reason why this is such an important point, is that we have to reconstitute vocational institutions, university institutions, institutions of solidarity and knowledge and skill and virtue within, not just as a replacement for the state, but within the economic system itself. And, and that's, the, that's the point at issue. I mean, I rather wonder whether we shouldn't be opening this up to you guys. We're supposed to be great believers in the people <laughs> power. Um, um, I, I mean, I could bore on forever, but let's get some questions. If you'll excuse my usurping the function of the chair. When do we end? Eight o'clock. Okay, well, look, so we have, we have I thought it was 7.45. If you, if, you, if you want, before we take a question, I'll, I'll just give a one-minute response to that. Please um, do. Um, okay, first of all, there's no such thing as the conservative tradition. There are a series of overlapping, jostling traditions within conservatism, as there are on the left. Um, uh, the second is, Hayek famously wrote an essay, you'll recall, saying, why I'm, called, why I'm not a conservative. Because that's not true. You don't want to pay any attention to that. that. I don't know what he was doing there, but he wasn't making a an accurate statement. He is, in fact, I mean, deeply conservative. And, and in the sense that I'm describing, and I think that, that Morris is describing, um, you'll recall, he said, no one can be an economist who is only an economist. I mean, uh, humans, human's nature is, 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 
I mean, he means, de he says determined, he doesn't mean determined, but, but I mean, you know, heavily influenced by being in society is a famous line which I quote in the book. That's his Aristotelianism coming out. He's a, he's a man who's a deep conservative. And you see this, in, and you're right, you see this constitutional liberty, you see this, in this idea of mediation. And I think Morris is exactly right, and if we just put on one thing, which is that if you set it up, so the only alternatives are state versus market, you're, you, you've, you've, you've built in a, a deep stupidity into your politics. And you might see that in the, I mean, Morris attributes that um, politically to 1945, but actually in some respects, we'd bought that line of thought um, earlier when um, we as a country allowed the argument to be framed in the 1930s uh, out of this institution. So I really blame the LSE um, uh, for, for all that's done uh, to create modern politics. Thank you, gentlemen. All, all, all right, before, before we hand over to the to floor, I'm going to assert my Hobbesian authority. I'm yeah. the chair. Yeah, this, this is a tacit this is, authoritarian already coming out. This you know? is up to me, and I've got yeah, one other question, yeah. which is in two parts, which I want to address to both of you. And it, it, it brings together something that I think is missing in the stories that you both tell. I mean, one way of characterising what you're both doing, I mean, there's the spectre of Hayek, there's the spectre of Keynes, and the attempt on both parts of your analysis, on both sides of your analysis, is to get beyond or get back beyond that to perhaps an Edwardian world in which we had pluralism, in which we had people arguing about the Charities Organisation Committee as an alternative to a National Health Service. We had the rise of new liberalism. We had this kind of rethinking about what the state should do in relation to the economy and the. And, and, so one could characterise both of you as new Edwardians. Now, there is another LSE figure who hasn't been mentioned here, and he was concerned with something that I don't think is sufficiently attended to by either of you, and that's Tawney. Oh, yeah. Tawney wrote about equality. Now, Morris, you, in, in your take on, on uh, Blue Labour, you, you write about um, Labour being too preoccupied with egalitarianism. That it's, uh, and that's a sort of welfareist egalitarianism. Jesse, in your story, that there isn't, um, there, there isn't very much about material equality or structural inequalities of power. Now, I just wonder, one of the things that Tawney brought to the, to the stage was not so much a concern about e equalities between individuals and welfareism, but the way in which gross inequalities, which did characterise the Edwardian world and are in danger of characterising our own, mm -hmm. undermine both of your projects for either a big society of mutualism and citizen engagement and freeing up intermediate institutions and your own yeah. attempt okay. to recover citizen virtue. So, so in a way, perhaps we should be banging on about equality and who delivers that, if not the state. Okay. Um, I'll Morris first, and then, yeah, and then I'll open it up to the floor. I will always take your lead Thank in you. these matters. Um, Good. I can, so, just to say, uh, I mean, it's slightly mischievous, Paul, although I do respect you deeply, of course, as chair, is, is that you know the tawny is fundamental to this, and you know that the tawny, tawny is, is an absolutely pivotal figure um, for me. And what is really, as you know, the equality book is, mm -hmm. is in, in many ways, is, is very elusive in this regard because it, it speaks of inequalities of power as well as material distribution. And he particularly attends to, to the role, and Jesse, forgive me, this is not party political, this is just attending to, to the matters of Tawney, and particularly the role of organised labour in addressing those inequalities 
of power. Obviously, the great elephant in the room in the big society, as well as on the Labour side, are, are the unions, the biggest dues-paying autonomous institutions in society. But the, the essay that I really recommend that you all to read, the most magnificent essay by Tawney, has the most unpromising title. It's called Christianity and the Social Order. It's at the end of a book called The Attack. And quick. yeah, yeah, I'll be, I'll be very quick. And, and, and what we can read that afterwards. Yeah, so just, I just, get I'm to just the point. you know, it's a university. I was just giving a reference. Um, <laughs> I used to be an academic at one point. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the reason that's important is precisely the, the importance that he gives to three things. First of all, the importance he gives to a tradition in that. And this, in this case, that's a Christian tradition of refusing to accept the power of the world, of either money or the state. That's vital. The second is the importance he gives to relationships and the way that both the state and the market erode those relationships. And the third really important thing is to action. Now, the problem, the problem so Tawney, just, Tawney is completely part of this debate. And, 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 and Tawney was an enormous critic of doing things for people which they could do for themselves. So what he was arguing for was an organized democratic labor movement. And so conflict was vital. In this conception of the good society, it's a society characterized by argument, conflict all the time. Um, now, the necessity of the state is undeniable, but the, it, it cannot be exclusive. Jesse, I don't, I don't expect you to comment on Tawney, but the, the point about equality distorting the good society. No, thank you. Well, it's a very interesting question. Um, I mean, just to clarify a few things, I don't talk enormous about material inequality. Um, I talk a bit about it. Uh, two or three quick things. Uh, there's nothing in what I've said that in any sense rejects the notion of redistributing money through the, through, the through the tax system. That's absolutely part and parcel. It's completely compatible and consistent with what I'm talking about. Um, uh, there is no clear story on the causes of inequality. It's obviously a huge issue, material inequality. But there is no absolutely clear story on the causes of inequality. And if you look at um, Wilson and Pickett's book, Wilkinson and Pickett's book, Richard's book, The Spirit Level, which, by the way, I take as a very important datum for, for a reason that people forget about, Why? because it shows that societies can be radically different. They can look quite similar and be radically different in their, in their um, social outcomes. And so um, it makes the point that I'm making, which is that there's no one-size-fits-all solution. You've actually got to get with the culture and get with the institutions involved. But if you look at that, what do they say in the final, in the final uh, epilogue? They, say, they basically say, we don't know what the solution is. Um, um, it's got something to do with the institution, it's got something to do with institutions, but we don't know what the solution is. They talk about co-ops, I mean, which is marvellous, and I'm, you know, I mean, I'm deeply involved with co-ops, but it's, you know, 0.01% of uh, GDP. So it's a very small amount of money. So, so, so um, uh, it, I accept the fact that it's important, vitally important. I don't think it's a clear story. The other reason why you might not think it's a clear story is that, um, I mean, just look at the 19, look at, look at, just look at economic history. I mean, a classic example would be you might think that, you know, uh, the America of the post-war period, 1950s, 60s, and 70s, was a, you know, thorough-blooded, full-blooded explosion of capitalism after the war. In fact, inequality fell, economic inequality fell during that period. And it only, it only took off in the middle of the 1980s. Um, you know, for, for technological reasons, for reasons of Reaganism, have you care to put it, but there, there were certain, you know, we don't know what the causes of inequality are. And one of the things that's fascinating is that the most thoroughgoing reattempt to reallocate cash, which has been done over the last 10 years, from a condition of utter economic superiority in 1997, has failed. 
Inequality now is worse than it was 10 or 12 years ago. And um, we've shot our bolt economically. There's no money left in the, in the pot, even if you thought, even if you had a proper uh, idea as to how to do it. Um, when you talk about the structural inequality of power, I talk a lot about that in the book. Um, it is, you cannot have the notion of a worthwhile notion of society where there's a shark on the reef. Okay, if you think these independent institutions are important, you've got to keep um, deep control, deep constraints at, at some level. And that expresses itself in two ways. One is constraints on the state. Well, that's no surprise. I think the state's uh, uh, are far too pervasive and far too extensive. I mean, I don't, I'm not arguing for massive rolling back. I'm just saying we need to understand the problem and start to analyze cleverer ways of delivering public services than the ones we have at the moment. But the other way is corporatism. Now, we haven't talked about this at all tonight, but one of the deep stories behind the perversions of capitalism have been the way in which it's become corporatized. And that's a whole boring further story. I talk a lot about that. I talk a lot about how you could curb that uh, in the book. Uh, and of course, the final thing is in regarding the market as having intrinsic limits of itself. And that's just returning to the Smithian, Aristotelian, etc., Burkean idea that these institutions are culturally embedded, have their natural scope and limits, and that we commit a deep, a grievous intellectual as well as practical error if we give them their head and just regard them as goods in and of themselves. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we're going to turn over to questions. I'm going to take them in fours. Put your hand up so I can see you clearly, and don't wait until you get the, the, the microphone. So let me start at the back. We've got two, so one first and then second. Um, I just have a question for um, Morris on the left there. Um, you talk about relational power and say that that's important for a good society. And I was just wondering what you think about the coalition government's initiatives for volunteerism and devolvement to local authorities. Thanks. Over there, gentlemen. Wait for the, wait for the microphone. Um, next year, which is the Olympic Games. And I was very concerned after the last Olympic Games that people were being interviewed about the delivery of medals. Now that sounds like people are not being sportsmanship about it. And this is what the Olympic Games is about. And the BBC were interviewing them about delivery. That sounds like corporatism, but it's very worse, and sponsorship. What are the BBC going to do about it, and what are the Conservative Party going to do about it? And Lord Glassman, I support your every word about this. So I'm very interested in the debate. Thank you. Two, two questions at the top here, one at the front, and then the gentleman who's just taken the microphone. So you go second. Don't be greedy. Thank you very much. A sort of two-part question for Lord Glassman. First of all, it, it seems like uh, your your thought is much closer to what I would associate with sort of the distributism of people like uh, like Chesterton or Bellick. And I, I, I wonder, uh, that tradition seems very alien to socialism to me. Um, and, and those people would have been very critical of, of socialism. So I, I wonder if you how you sort of draw that distinction. And, and you talk about Catholic social teaching, but it seems to me that the Catholic Church has moved in a more uh, conservative direction on, on some of these economic matters, and John Paul II in particular uh, argued in Sententissimus Annus about the, the, the value of the market mechanism for promoting virtue and how uh, it wasn't at all necessarily sort of pointing towards avarice, but it was quite compatible with the, the idea of virtue. So I'm curious if you could comment on those two things. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Morris, I know you're a great friend of um, the citizens' movement, and um, and uh, uh, London citizens in particular. And the question I really want to ask the both of you is the role of faith and faith groups in the recreation of the state. Because I know that, Maurice, you mentioned trade unions. 
has been one of the biggest membership organizations. Of course, faith groups are one of the biggest membership organizations that exist right across the country. Black churches, for example, are one of the biggest growing faith, faith, faith structures uh, in the whole country. And of course, they're also, um, they also have a critique of capital with money being the root to cause of all evil. And over the 80s, while um, Thatcherism was demolishing, demolishing a lot of state institutions, of course, it's faith groups that have kept things together and are now re-emerging as the places where we can rebuild societies. And I just want to know whether some comment can be said on that. Okay, so a lot of those questions were addressed to Morris, but I also want Jesse to sort of respond. Oh, I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> no, please, you begin. Do, I think, why don't you kick off, Morris, and I'll, and I'll sweep up. Okay, um, I mean, yeah, yeah, sorry, I was lounging around in an Edwardian Sort yes, of a leisure style. It wasn't a recommendation. Okay. It was an observation. Well, in Blair White terms, it's an aspiration. Um, so to just begin, I'll, I'll take them in order, roughly speaking, and try try to be try to be quick. Um, volunteerism in itself is it's a wonderful thing, and um, but but by no means you know necessary, but not a sufficient condition if we're going to get really boiled. But because what needs to happen, and this is related to this discussion of corporatism, there's two sides to corporatism. There's this corporate capitalist personality monster that dominates our high streets that, that does that. And then there's this other thing which is kind of related to the distributionism argument, which is that corporatism is also the most important um, tradition we have of trying to conceptualise economic interests in, in the economic realm. And what's absolutely vital to any conception of a good society, and I would argue that to the big society, is, is having a balance of interests in all the institutions, in the corporate governance of all institutions, so that one interest doesn't, doesn't dominate alone. And that's the way that you actually begin, people begin to negotiate with each other and genuinely to express some kind of shared ownership of the places that they live and the places that they work. So, um, so, so we're going to have to find some way of reconceptualizing the corporatist tradition, I think, in, in this story. Um, and it will have to be, um, that will have to go on at the level of, of, of corporate governance of firms. And I mean, the problem that I've got with mutualization, the problem that I've got with a co-op is the same problem I've got with Marxism, is it's just one single interest. The same problem I've got with managerialism. Worker-run firms in themselves, that's not, you know, how do you, there has always got to be tension and conflict in any way. There's got to be a way of conceptualizing that and then generating a, a common good um, within it. Um, so so the, the, we have to open up the institutional spaces so that people can have power and what the overwhelming experience of people inside and I think Jesse writes very well about this in the book is exclusion, humiliation and domination when they go to work more or less I mean, I'm, you know, LSE is probably better than London Met in that regard but um, yeah. that's, that's, that's the way it goes the, the, the second one in relation I don't want to go obviously the, the, the Olympics it, it's a very problematic thing. I mean, on the one hand, put me, London citizens, we put a huge amount of work making it a living wage Olympics. This is the first ever Olympics where people are going to be paid a living wage, but we notice that they're slipping, slipping, slipping on the payment of living wage. There's more contracting out. You know, it, it, there's going to have to be far greater reorganisation there. But it's, um, 
I agree. It, 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 there, there, there's something with the with the whole product placement and branding, and it it, it, it looks like it's going to be absolutely foul, really. Um, in in the in the and yeah, and then <laughs> there's a massive problem there. But that that's the worst side of the Greek inheritance, in a way. Is 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 that is the Olympics? Yeah. So <laughs> you know. That was sort of pre-Christian pre, pre virtues that got a bit out of control. Um, and which brings us to this, to this third, third thing. I, I mean, um, the question about, there's an element of, of you know, Tristan Bellot, the problem with all of them is that they were horrible anti-Semites. And so, I, you know, I really don't like it uh, that much. Um, it's a good point, for it, but, but they're, 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 that's not the, the kind, they weren't Labour. People, um, that there were there were there was a dis, uh, a real disliking of, of the openness of English society, of the energy of English society. But I do take that the distributionist thing within the Catholic tradition is very important. But where I wouldn't agree with you at all is about John Paul II. Um, if you read Laborum Exercens, the encyclical on human labour, that's one of the most outstanding pieces of work on work that I've ever that I've ever read. Um, he also did Centenimus Annus, which was 100 years after Rerum Navarum, which is, of, on this stuff, just relating back um, to the ladies walking out the room, is, is, is to the balance of interests, to a certain rehabilitation of democratic corporatism. That, that's, that's quite magnificent. And I would say that the contemporary economist, and I share this with Jesse, we've never talked about it, is Stefano Zamagni who wrote a book called The Civil Economy, which is really a superb development of these ideas. And he basically wrote the latest encyclical, which is, um, which is Caritas in Veritate. Um, these, the, the, it's very complicated. It's a form of radical conservative. There's a strong element of conservatism and a very strong sense of resisting the domination of capital within it. It's a massive inspiration for, for my work, just to share. So I don't, think it, I don't think it would be right to, to say that there was a conservative term, particularly not in the political economy of John Paul II and, then, and now of, of Pope Benedict. Then obviously the most important thing, for the last 10 years I've worked with London citizens, overwhelmingly working with um, faith communities. You know, that's where there's a huge amount of relational and associational energy. There's also, it taught me a huge amount of things. I arrived in that scene as a sort of a, secular lefty kind of kinnicky kind of guy and, and, it, and it really radicalised me and made me respect religious people, people of faith, poor people, the way that they kept their culture of association when secular forms of association atrophied was one of the most enormous lessons in the development of, of my thought. So very briefly I know we, we're under, is that I would, I, to honour we must, you know, the left, this is now I'm talking from my ghetto, has got to honour two people who we don't honour anymore. Poor people and religious people. P I, people who haven't had a university education in the social science. It just cleansed me of that arrogance, that Fabian arrogance, was, was watching how the living wage campaigns developed, how the living wage campaign developed uh, at Queen Mary's here, at HSBC, at Barclays, was all driven by by Catholic and, and, and non-conformist churches with, with support of mosques, overwhelmingly by people who, who were working, often being exploited and doing two jobs. And it was the faith tradition that they weren't commodities. Okay, let's have some more questions and I'll bring Jesse in. Uh, uh, Just 
you can lead off with the next because yeah. you've had to wait. I have Can a hell of a lot of questions. Okay, yeah. George. Sure. Since both of you seem to agree in being hostile to a strong centralized state and excessive marketization, why don't you join together and champion Hayek's view that since some functions couldn't all be given to markets and you are fearful of things being given to the centralized state, why can't you follow Hayek and become champions, as he said, of municipal government between central and markets, uh, elected local authorities, which would fit in with Morris's love of labor traditions, which were much stronger than trade unions or mutual societies. This was where labor first got power, and it would fit in with the traditions of Jesse of civic conservatism. Why aren't you champions of democratically elected local government? Question further down the line. My question directly follows that up. We've had a, a, an amazing a set of references to dead writers, but no examples of places that actually work much better than uh, the British society. Uh, why is it that we don't learn from European cities mm. where they have achieved much higher standards on almost every level through much greater autonomy, much less central direction, much less money being collared by the state? Uh, and also, and, and another player perhaps, the, the, the family firm. Why is it that uh, neither of the recent governments have bothered to uh, really champion uh, independent business? Yeah. Okay, let's, let's start on those and, 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 and then work back and I'll take some more questions. Jesse. Well, thank you both very much indeed for those excellent questions. Um, well, of course, I, I am extremely sympathetic to both of them. Um, I mean, cities, are, I, wrote, I once edited a book on cities, which actually... Policy exchange um, and um, called "Living for the City," um, named after that song by Steve Wonder. And um, and uh, cities are, of course, institutions in and of themselves. A properly a, 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 a philosophical viewpoint that took these things seriously would understand that. Um, and uh, and the same and and would recognise the cultural and social distinctiveness and the economic achievements, which have, as you know, been they've been powers of economic uh, growth throughout history. Um, and so would uh, would take steps to enfranchise them, but it wouldn't do it. It would do it through local government principally, um, uh, because that's what it is to recognise the city is to understand its own capacity for autonomy as well. Um, so I agree with that. People forget um, that. Uh, I mean, depending on how you how you judge it, um, the central state was developed sometime between Henry the Second and I suppose Thomas Cromwell. Um, local government goes back to the time of King Alfred. Um, it's the foundational institution of British government. And it's not only that, it's also the institution through which 90% of the people have 90% of their experience of government at all. So it's vital. And, and that's why I think that uh, people in this room, if they are fair-minded, should have much more respect for what, however, uh, as you might see it incompetently or haltingly, the government's trying to do. The localism is about trying to enfranchise some of these institutions. Mm. The, 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 the schools bill is about trying to enfranchise schools as independent institutions, as well to liberate human capability through the through the um, sorry Thomas uh, uh, Morris having had ten of the, Thomas, having had fifteen of the last uh, ten minutes I'm going to um, you, uh, you you should give me a moment um, so so um, that uh, uh, so that of course is right and I would back Hayek's intuition 
in that regard as well. Let's just come on to some of the other ones. Of course, the point on faith groups, people always misquote this, and it's terribly important not to do it. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. Yeah. It is not money that is the root of all evil. That's a barbarism. It's the love of money. Yeah. Uh, and it relates back to the nature of the self. And that, again, is the constant linking theme. It's the self of the, the individual as well as the self of the institution. Um, back to distributism versus socialism, that was a wonderful question. Thank you for that. Um, it's not, I mean, I was working in Poland running a an educational charity at this point during the communist period, um, the latter in 1988, 89, and I vividly recall um, uh, the joy that the Poles took uh, in having John Paul II as their Pope uh, and uh, the intellectual, and while I'm not at all an expert in this area, it wasn't, un, it wasn't unconnected with the fact that they'd been living under communism for 40 years. He had, they had been, the Poles were the, some of the greatest theorists of the market properly understood that have ever existed at that time because they spent years sitting around in living rooms arguing about it. Um, Olympic Games, of course I completely disagree with um, Morris about that. Um, the Greeks, um, it, no, there was no more fitting, at least um, ideal expression of human capability than the Olympics um, in its original, I mean in its original form it was uh, an expression of um, that capability that was not fettered by prize money. You got a, you got a garland of um, laurels. You didn't get money, although money might follow. Um, and, it was, and it was a celebration of the human self and soul. And if we had an Olympics that represented that, I would be thrilled about it. That isn't what we have. And I'm afraid, again, there's a little barbarity in um, criticizing a government, for, although however complicit it may be, for inheriting a situation which has failed to change in a year um, of government at a time when there is a fire in the economic engine room. Um, final point, volunteerism. I absolutely agree with you. Nothing could bring out the point we were arguing about earlier more, more interestingly than this. Volunteerism as a little box that you think of um, is a very small component of economic activity. As a dimension of human character, of human capability, as the expression of the three things that we know matter to people when they have a bit of money, which is autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Your self-control, uh, your self-direction, uh, your, your mastery of a subject, your ability to exercise expertise, and the feeling that what you do is meaningful. As that no more, there's no more fitting expression of that than volunteering. And again, at the risk of making a political point, I think you guys should be thrilled about the idea of national citizen service, because when you have the idea of a human being not as an economic automaton, but as a creature of habit, then these kinds of nudges think Duke of Edinburgh scheme multiplied half a million times in each generation that goes through, that would be, if it could be done in a non-corporatist way, there's a question, um, in, in not too much of a state-driven way, there's another question, would be a profound opportunity to reshape um, the, the society over a period of time, and one that I think we should be certainly considering spending a significant portion of taxpayer money on. More With that, questions. I'll stop. Tony. Uh, Tony Travers from the LSE, from the Government Department. Uh, I mean, successive governments from Attlee all the way through to now have allowed a drift of the state to being bigger and controlling more, to the point where Britain is without doubt, certainly England within Britain, perhaps the most centralised place of its kind, big country in the world. Now, present government has come up with big society and localism policies which are 
an attempt, as you said, Jesse, to um, redress or to create some sort of a way of addressing that problem. But there's no doubt that if this is to work in either of your terms, we the people have to be convinced that we no longer want great big state institutions doing everything. We've seen in the last few days how oddly we apparently do want the NHS to be a great big state institution with great state guarantees. Outside here today, there's an enormous logistical exercise going on with fire engines that have come from all over London, brilliantly organized to put out a fire. And I think we probably like that. So how are we going to wean ourselves, or how are you going to wean us off wanting all of this logistical, centralized control delivering services, and by the way, stepping in when, Centra, uh, when Southern Cross, or whatever it was called, went bankrupt, could have been a charity going bankrupt, immediately the state has to step in. How are you going to stop, stop us wanting things you don't want us to want? Okay. Two, two final questions, one over there and then the gentleman will stand up. So. Uh, my question takes its bearing on uh, Baron Glassman's argument. You stated that uh, from an Aristotelian standpoint, and I hope I don't misquote you, the pursuit of money can only lead to the, t to the deterioration of re relationships and through that society. Mm -hmm. um, I was wondering if you were perhaps in your argument neglecting the social value of money. Right. Yeah. And then the last question, gentlemen over there in the blue shirt. Thanks. Um, this is also a question about centralization and municipal government. Um, it, it seems that the, that the cuts, the recent cuts, actually shown a, a, a problem and a tension between centralised government and local authority. What basically happened was the government told the nation that cuts have to be made and the local authorities go ahead and make the cuts, uh, but make the cuts in your own way. So what the authorities did is they um, closed down libraries and um, closed down the rubbish um, rounds instead of lowering the salaries of their own executives. Um, and it sort of appears, it appears that, there's a, that, that these two institutions are vying for power and there, and there is a competition. And what happens was, that, was the local citizen says, well, it's the government who gave me these cuts. The government is closing down libraries. Well, no, it's the local authority. What are you, what are you going to do? Thank you. Morris, do you want to go first? Yeah, I will. I'm, I'm very aware that, that we're running out of, yeah. out of time. So um, sorry to be quick. Just to... Get, to go back to, to your thing, um, obviously municipal mu municipal socialism is 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 an absolutely core part of of the English tradition. It's it's absolutely where the the education of of of, of the labour tradition and, and there's two things. In a way, this localism stuff is trying to bypass municipal cities. There's this th nothing more man nothing could express the managerialism both of new labour and. And, and this government, then this whole thing that a directly elected mayor is going to replace a body politic. So, I've, I mean, I've also written on this, I've written a piece ages ago called Returning Citizenship to the City, and the idea is to reconstitute city parliaments um, in cities to broker a common good in those places, and the renewal of the city is great, but the place we've got to start is, is here in London, is, is to claim as citizens that the inheritance of the city, the inheritance of citizenship, of the liberties, of the assets of, of a great city of over a thousand years old, Tony, we spoke about this on the telly the other day, is our inheritance to challenge the corporation of London and its control of our liberties and its control of our assets and claim it so that the Guildhall is our city parliament, so that Boris can sit in Mansion House 
as the Lord Mayor. And, and, uh, and, uh, it's a wonderfully yeah. conservative vision. <laughs> yes, this is a conservative vision. And, and, um, and, and that relates, and when you say, I mean, I don't want to set too many to hairs racing, I, I'm absolutely committed to, to Labour victory, but if there was any coalition to be made, um, I'd much rather be in a coalition with Jesse's wing of the Conservative Party than with the Liberal Democrats, that's for absolutely sure. Uh, and, and I think that would be an extremely um, interesting form of, form of government. Um, I'm in favour of what I call shovenomics rather than nudgeonomics. I think we've got to get some energy into, into, into pushing people in the right way. But in, in terms of renewing um, cities, I think, I think there is a contemporary inspiration for, for us, which is the German social market economy with the vocational training, with the regional banks, with the federal system. I think we're going to have to, I don't want to, we're going to have to think federally now. I think Scotland and Wales are going to go as national and we're going to have to think about reconstituting the, the and this is going to be an extremely creative moment, Jesse, for, for thinking about, about politics. And I think central to that will be autonomous cities um, and, and city-states, effectively, commune, to, to, re, to return to a concept of the commune um, and the city. That's, that's really very important. I know I, I'm really... Um, I, I, I just got to, just got to return to, the, to, uh, to try to summarise, of course... Money, the, the pursuit of the pursuit of it, it's it's what Jesse said. It's when money is pursued as a good outside of all other relations. I'm looking for you that 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 when it becomes rarefied, abstracted, and an end in itself, um, then then that become that that opens the way to forms of of domination, and it and it comes back to 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 you know to to the issue that Tony Travers raised. I think very excellently. It is, is as follows, is that if, if we, if we concept, conceptualise citizenship as a form of dependency, then there's got to be forms of responsibility. There's various ways that you can conceptualise that in terms of police, in terms of fire, in terms of army. You can, you can, I think it's completely acceptable to have national forms of, of service or, or city-wide forms of service, but we live in a society where people feel isolated, powerless and extremely unhappy, and it's just to just to redistribute power, and I think there is going to have to be a confrontation, I think this whole move with Morris, Scotland I've, I've, got, I've is got to give the last word to, to Jesse, because we are really running out of time, so uh, you, you uh, in a couple of minutes, don't worry too much about that. Okay, right, uh, looks like I've got one of, our, of the last five minutes. Oh, let me just very quickly um, make the various points. Of course, Tony, it's a brilliant point, um, because we like our security, and we think of our security in terms of large institutions. And when we have security like that, we, one of the reasons we like it is we don't have to think. Um, and, uh, of course, you, you, know, you don't need me to remind you of the importance of the nation state. We've just had the most enormous and, by the way, continuing economic financial crisis in which the only thing that kept us alive and that may yet sink the Greek economy is the nation state's capacity to command the tax revenue of its citizens. So that's... Um, uh, that, I think, is absolutely right. How do you get out? And by the way, while we're helping ourselves, while we're having our cake and eating it too, um, we'd like quite a lot of diversity and innovation, but we don't want a postcode lottery. So, so, um, so, so, sure. so truth of the matter is we're hopelessly conflicted on these things, um, and uh, the only thing that will make a difference is time and the experience of a better alternative. And so we need more innovation in order to see how these things might work. On the social value of money, it's a beautiful point. Uh, gentlemen there. Thank you for that. 
Um, the same can be said about a market. A market is a place where people meet, mm -hmm. um, if it's properly understood or at least have some interaction. Markets have done more to spread human culture, sometimes for the good, sometimes, often for the good, sometimes for the bad. Um, and the same is true, bizarrely, of financial markets. Um, uh, uh, vying for power between central and local government. I forget the gentleman who said that. Yeah. Very interesting uh, point. Uh, yeah, the, you have to grit your teeth if you're in central government, hand over the power and trust to transparency and local democracy to see you through. Otherwise, you get the mistake that was made in Sheffield and Liverpool in the 1980s where they start uh, capping rates. Well, as soon as you start capping rates, you've taken all that power away, you've, you've disenfranchised, and the fascinating thing is going to be to see how opening up local government starts to bring good people of energy and character and integrity into local government. Bizarrely, it's happened in Hertfordshire, my own, in my own constituency, my own county. We've already had, just on the promise of change, new people come forward who are making a dramatic difference to the quality of governance there, and that's a rather thrilling thought. And I hope people in this room, when the moment comes in their own lives, will think about going to local government, if not national government, to express that kind of thought. Um, on uh, uh, let me just say one final thing, which is this. Um, it's very important to realize, I think there's something really important going on here, and I could be wrong, and you must tell me if after the event if it is, but I think there's very something very important going on, which is, which is what Morris and I are in common seeking is a new way of thinking about politics within politics, which allows us to get away from some of the extremely stale and superseded economic and political uh, assumptions that have been made over the last uh, three, four longer decades. Um, the test of that is going to be actually, I think, um, not just whether or not the government, uh, the coalition government can hold its nerve in, in, in taking the idea of the big society and the way we've discussed it tonight generously as a, as a noble ambition which could be pursued with integrity and, and energy, but, but on the other side of the political equation as to whether Ed Miliband is able to work with Morris and to couch his own party, not in this lockstep Fabian uh, uh, way that historically has been the default position even in the last 10 years, um, but in a way that reaches beyond it to new institutions. If we can have that kind of argument in 2015 at the general election, then we'll really know that there's been a change in the in the uh, a watershed has been reached and that actually some really interesting new ideas will be able to flow and their political implementation as well. Thank you. Well, I couldn't really sum up tonight better than that, so I won't. So let me just thank you all for your, your patience and your contribution, and thank you for coming along. And can I thank our two speakers, Jesse Norman MP and Lord Glassman. And, um,